A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beach read, but wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We are heartbroken over the news coming out of Las Vegas. We share our initial thoughts as well as continue our conversation about consumerism and politics with author Joshua Davis. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are going to start our first segment discussing the tragic events that happened in Las Vegas Sunday night. And then we are going to share an interview I did with Joshua Davis. He's a professor of history and has written a book called From Headshots to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Actor Activist Entrepreneurs. And I think it's a really interesting continuation of the conversation we had last week about consumerism and how we think about consumerism in politics. Um also, there's this really fascinating story about co-ops 
in the seventies and how they like had violent takeovers takeover of each other's. It's pretty crazy. So you'll want to stay tuned for that after our first segment. Before we start talking about the news, we have a couple of housekeeping things to share, which it feels awkward to do anything else when something horrible has happened. Mm -hmm. But we will try to kind of keep some sort of normalcy happening here on the show. So we first want to say a huge thank you to our listener, Katie, to Lacey, and to everyone at the YWCA Bristol for inviting us to speak at their Emerge event in Tennessee last week. It was it was so much fun to be together in person, which is always a treat for the two of us and to meet so many wonderful people and to be part of a great event. You know, the mission of the YWCA is one that's really close to our hearts. And so it was, it was just fantastic to be there. Thank you so much. We are going to be doing another private event on October 27th in Cincinnati and it's killing us to not share more details about it because it's super exciting and we will closer to time. But right now, if you are in the Cincinnati area and would like an invitation to this event, shoot me an email. It's Beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and we'll give you some more information and see if we can get you in there. We also want to say thank you for your new iTunes reviews and to all of our new patrons. Your support is really blowing us away, and it's really important to us as we keep trying to build what we're doing here. So please keep all of that stuff coming, and uh, just thank you so much. And also, we'll be sending out special Pantsuit Politics magnets and stickers to all our patrons soon. So um, if you're we're thinking about becoming a patron, now is the time. So you get on the list to be sent a magnet. So we are recording on Monday morning. By the time this episode drops, you will know more than we do right now about what's happened in Las Vegas. So we can't give you any real news about it other than knowing already that it is the worst mass shooting in the country's history. But we thought that it was important to take a few minutes at the top of the show to talk just about how to process something like this. And that was really why we decided to keep um, up and share the interview we'd already planned on sharing, because I just think that with more information coming, I just want to be very careful about how we um, talk about the event and the shooter. And um, not that there aren't important points to be made, but we just really want to be thoughtful and considerate of the fact that we just don't know all the information right now. And I think that that thoughtfulness is something that I've been sitting with a little bit this morning, you know, I instantly started scrolling my Twitter feed and realizing that sort of the same old is happening already. Mm -hmm. And what I thought about that I hadn't really thought about before, as I saw that, is that we are doing the opposite of something that you and I talk a lot about, you know, assuming good intent in people who disagree with us. Because as I read the, um, this is the time to talk about gun control versus this is not the time to talk about gun control. I see in people who want action on gun legislation, an assumption that the people who are saying, let it breathe are actually saying, stop talking about this because we don't ever want to do anything about guns because we value money more than lives. And we know you're over there celebrating this happen because you want to use it as a point in your gun debate. And I think the people who are reacting to this is the moment to do something about guns, obviously, because it's another indicator, you know, that we have a serious gun problem in this country are reading into those statements. 
I told you so, morons, and I'm happy that this happened to show you that I told you so. And we're just going, like, think about how awful we are making what we believe is in the hearts of other humans when we feed into this debate in this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I I, I struggle because there were a couple of things that stuck out to me as I was... um taking in the events in Las Vegas. First, it's just incredibly upsetting as a victim of a mass shooting in high school that, you know, we're still forced to watch these things and tragic things happen and these awful conversations play out. And the first thing that really bothered me was the nothing's going to change if dead children in Sandy Hook didn't wake people up, nothing will. That is incredibly upsetting because that cynicism on that level I feel personally is an insult to the lives lost. Cynicism doesn't help anyone. And while I understand that the increasing severity of these tragic events can make someone feel hopeless, you can feel hopeless and feel sad without sort of being cynical and blowing off the people who've lost their lives to gun violence and acting like um, nothing is ever going to change. Because while I understand that our gun problem is so big, um, changes on the margins don't feel that impactful. Changes on the margins and gun violence is someone's lives being saved, period. And so um, I just feel like that sort of narrative is so unhelpful and so problematic. And the other thing that really bothers me about the whole way we talk about this is like, you have to, it becomes like, if you want to pray about this, you're part of the problem. And I really wish we could stop talking about it like that. Like, that's why we talk about becoming a prayer, but that doesn't mean that there isn't space and a reaction to an event this horrific for prayer. If somebody wants to pray, that's okay. Now I understand that we all hate the thoughts and prayers and it feels empty. But to many, many people, prayer is a a source of comfort and solace, and it's anything but empty to them. And so I don't think we need to talk about it like that. I don't think we need to pick sides. And if you want to pray about something horrific happening, you're the enemy. Like about if we have to if we have to if we have to politicize prayer, I don't know. That seems really problematic. You know, that's exactly what I was trying to hit on with the intent element, too. I think we. Our reaction today has been one of demonizing other people instead of uniting around the fact that something that that is as significant as any event of terror can be has happened in our country. And I I don't understand where we think we're going to go from here if if the way we respond to something like this is to go, ugh, those people again, you know? Well, and here's what, now I will say this. To me, becoming a prayer means taking action. I am an action person. Um, I have already called my center's office. I didn't get through, but I'm going to try again, and I'm going to call my representative as well. Because there is something that doesn't pass the smell test for me. I was thinking I was uh, I was reading about current gun legislation and there is the current gun legislation um regarding silencers on um guns that was postponed when Steve Scalise was shot and is back on the floor. And I'm reading 
the sort of normal breakdown of the Democrats saying this is a, you know, it distributes the sound. It's going to make harder for first responders. And then you have Republicans um, who support the legislation saying, oh, they're making this out of nothing. This isn't a silencer. This is just protecting Hunter's hearing. Okay. So here's my reaction to that. In 2017, do we believe that the number one or top 15 most important things Congress can be doing right now is protecting Hunter's hearing? That does not pass the smell test to me. What it sounds like is you want, or somebody, perhaps the gun industry, wants more things to sell and removing this. These silencers opens up a whole new array of products to sell and make money off of. Because I do not believe the most important thing you guys can be doing with your time right now is passing legislation to protect Hunter's hearing. Surely you don't buy the American, expect the American public to believe that. So I do doubt your motives there. I'm just going to be honest. Um, and so I would like to see some movement. No one thinks it'll fix the problem overnight, but a majority of Americans support common sense gun control and we need to start passing it i'm tired of breaking this record i agree with all of that it is impossible for me to understand how with the events that have happened in the last couple of years not just this week but the last couple Mm -hmm. of years including the shooting at congressional baseball practice how congress could see passing any kind of legislation that makes guns more silent um, as a reasonable priority. It's, it's just not, I mean, that is so incredibly dangerous thinking about what just happened in Las Vegas and the fact that here are people, this isn't a situation where anybody would have been safer if there had been guns in the crowd. Yep. You know, that's always an argument, right? Something terrible happens and people say, well, it's too bad. Nobody else had a gun there. No, this shooter was 32 floors in the air. Mm-hmm. raining down terror on people who couldn't tell which direction to run in. Oh. Now, imagine how much worse this would have been if they didn't hear the popping. Imagine oh that. So, so traumatic to not even understand what was happening. So Congress they already don't didn't. do this. There's so many victims that reported they thought it was fireworks at first because it was a concert. And it's Las Vegas. And I mean, mm-hmm. if you've spent any time on the strip in Las Vegas around 10 p.m., it would take a minute for, for something like this to register. And so I think that legislation is awful. And I hope that it's just, I hope it goes absolutely nowhere. I think that all it requires to start to have a real conversation about guns, which we've tried to do several times on the show, is to, is to be willing to acknowledge that yes, there are lots of Americans who own guns as part of sport or collection in some kind of nostalgic historic way, whatever, who have no bad intention around those guns. And that there are lots of people who acquire guns for the purpose of doing harm. And that there are lots of people who acquire guns without the purpose of doing harm and end up doing harm with them anyway. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are true. I think the biggest thing for me that I've there was a really excellent weeds that I will go back and find um, from Vox and put in the show notes where it just helped me see that the biggest problem. And, you know, he talks about this in Bowling for Columbine. We can talk about the way people use guns, and that's very important. 
And we can talk about um, protections um, from people getting guns with, um, I'm, I was going to say mentally ill, but my thinking on that has shifted. And I really think that, you know, one of my, one of the best things I've learned about in the gun control discussion is that mentally ill people are more likely to be harmed by guns than to do the harming. And so I think it stigmatizes the mentally ill to say that that's the source of our problem. But let's just say that there is a conversation to be had there. Which is the problem in America is that we just have too many guns. We just have too many. And, you know, it reminds me of the way we like to talk about um, a lot of conversations and politics. So, for example, in the pension issue, Democrats, um, when they talk about the pension problem in Kentucky, want to act like the only way we're going to solve the problem is to change the rules moving forward. And that's simply inaccurate. It just is. We can't fix it by just moving forward in a different way by changing the way we sign people up for retirement programs, new employees. We can't, we can't fix it by solve by screwing new employees. Right. And I think that as a country, we need to decide that we can't just fix or even begin to address our gun problem by only talking about the way people get guns. And Democrats don't want to talk about this either because nobody wants to to add fuel to the NRA's fire. Who's let's be honest, gone a little off the deep end with their rhetoric recently. Those videos are bananas um, that they've been putting out because they don't have Obama to scare people with anymore, so they have to think of new things. Sorry, I'm losing my nu- losing my nuance about the NRA, and I don't even feel bad about it. Um, is they're so terrified that we can't have any conversation about taking guns because that is the third rail, and then you're a dictatorship and you know, they, their numbers go up and everybody takes and runs to the gun store and buys all the bullets. But like, I'm sorry, that's a hard conversation to have. And I'm sorry, it's a difficult thing to talk about. But one of the big problems in America is we have too many actual guns out there. And so until we can really have an honest conversation with each other about that, I don't think that that's not to say that changes and common sense gun control and changes on the margins aren't important. But we have to find space to at least have a conversation about that. Even if it is we don't ever, ever, ever want to take someone's gun away. And so we'll just make this sacrifice. Fine. We can have that conversation, but at least be honest with each other. And I think a lot of gun owners are willing to have that conversation. And look, I am now a gun owner. There is a gun in my house. I want it at a giveaway. Um, and so I think about that. And one of the most interesting experiences I've had from getting that gun, this gun, which is a handgun, is how many of my friends who are devoted outdoorsmen, people I know have very strong belief about guns say, oh, I don't own a handgun. They're dangerous, which was so interesting to me. So it's not like there's not nuance to be found within this community. You know, they don't need to be painted with a broad swath any more than anyone else. But, you know, until we can be honest and have these conversations with each other, I just don't know how we move forward. Yeah, I think the NRA is not deserving of nuance at this point. Nope. But that doesn't There's a new mean... hashtag. No nuance for the NRA. But that doesn't mean that gun owners aren't deserving mm-hmm. of nuance. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't I mean there this is just an issue that we can we have to put everything on the table because it is everything that you just said is true and I have no disagreement with it. Also, it is true as my husband would say, if he were sitting here with us, that people can kill each other in all kinds of ways that have nothing to do with guns. And we can put that on the table as well and understand that when we talk about, because I think this is a common misperception, when we talk about gun regulation, 
I think people who who fear that or on the other side of that for any number of reasons believe that the motivation is to control every outcome and try to eliminate violence. And I think it's true that everyone who advocates for reasonable gun regulations understands that that will not eliminate violence in our society. You know what I think? I think it is. It fits with this conversation that I have a little bit with Josh in the next segment, which is this is in a way about consumerism in that there is a current an undercurrent to me that I notice, which is consumerism. More is always better. You will not limit my health care. More health care is better health care. You will not. We will not have a conversation in this country about how many actual guns we want in our world. Is more guns always better guns? Is should there be? Should we have a conversation about how many actual physical guns, which are dangerous objects, we want in our world? Or more gun? More you know? Back to even climate change. More cars, better cars. More air conditioning, more building, more development is better. More is better. More is always better. That's what we tell ourselves, right? And so, when do we get to stop and say, wait? Is more better? Maybe it is. But can we at least take a beat and ask ourselves that very important question? Guns are very dangerous. Do we do we want to have a conversation all about how many we just actually want to exist in our side, our country? Or is are we okay with as many as can be produced, as many as can be sold? Is that fine with us? I don't know if it's fine with me. And so, you know, this is this. Let's have a conversation about this very dangerous object and what we, if more is always better in this area and in every other area in our society. Well, and let's take the example that is in front of Congress right now. Do we want guns to not only be accessible in practically unlimited quantities, but also to have no countervailing considerations about using them? Mm -hmm. Like to me, the fact that there is risk to the gun user from the sound of the gun, I think that's a good thing. I think we should keep that risk. Mm -hmm. I think we should keep anything that makes you pause for a second to consider the safety involved in using something Mm -hmm. and to take the precaution of headphones or earbuds or whatever one uses to protect one's ears when using a gun. But I think that reminder, this is a loud object. This is a dangerous object. I think that's good. I don't think we should start saying How can we not only have unlimited quantities of guns in the world, but then let's make them as comfortable as possible to use? And Mm -hmm. that is consumerism run rampant as well, because we're like that about everything. Not only do I want to have everything I can possibly have, but I want to use it as comfortably as I might if I were sitting with my feet up watching television. And don't ever, ever, ever make me think of the consequences of me consuming this at the absolute maximum capacity I can. And right. that's, Don't, you know, what's so interesting about that is someone hearing this conversation who's in a very different state of mind than we are is going to call us the nanny state, right? But it's the opposite. What we're saying right now is, no, if you want to use something like this, we want you to use it conscientiously, <laughs> you know, fully aware of what you're actually doing instead of wrapping yourself in a blanket of comfort. Yep. Yep. Because I think with, you know, and I think maybe this is a positive way to take the conversation because it does detach it from um, sort of guns as stopping violence in every way, shape or form. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say that we want to detach it from the damage and the tragic consequences of gun violence. I don't. 
But I do think that there is a space here to take the conversation and say, I want to just talk about guns as an object, whether or not they harm someone immediately or ever. How many do we actually want out there? Do we actually think producing guns with no regulation to how many there should be is a good thing? And maybe you think that that is, and that's fine. I'm willing to have that conversation. But like, maybe there is a separate conversation because I think that there is absolutely an industry involved here and there is money involved here. And if we continue to ignore that, we're missing part of the equation. I want to talk about the Second Amendment for a second, too. So I have a retraction to make. When we did an early episode about why we identify as Republican or Democrat, like way back in the day when Donald Trump running for office was a little bit funny um, and and not a very real possibility. And in that conversation, I was talking about why I think it's important to have our communities be our problem solvers of first resort and the federal government be a problem solver of last resort. And in that conversation, I said the words, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about tyranny. I do now. (laughs) So I want to take that back. I do spend a lot of time thinking about tyranny. And I was actually thinking the most about this over the weekend because of Tom Price, because one of my major issues with the Affordable Care Act at the time it was passed was how It was just this kind of framework, and it left so much work to do with health and human services instead of being passed in legislation. They're just regulations on regulations. And then a major problem that I've had with every Republican proposal since then is that they're doing the same thing and worse, right? With BCRA, it was all, we're just going to let Tom Price over at Health and Human Services take care of this. And now we know the serious ethical issues surrounding Tom Price. And so I was thinking about how I have always thought of the Republicans as the party to protect us from too much control because any individual can, can have issues. And, but now we have like this perfect example of how we were ready to hand over the keys to somebody who said, no, thanks for the car. I want a private jet on the taxpayer's dollar. Mm -hmm. But it leads me to the second amendment in this way. The Second Amendment passed to ensure that people had a method of defending themselves against a tyrannical government. And that purpose, to me, is not served anymore by the idea of unlimited guns available for public consumption. Mm -hmm. Your handgun up against the United States military in the hands of a tyrannical dictator is not going to solve the problem. That doesn't mean I don't want you to be able to own a handgun, but it means at the same time as I believe that you're entitled to own your handgun if you want to under certain parameters, I also believe that there is tons of room within the letter and spirit of the Second Amendment to have the conversation you, Sarah, are suggesting that we have about whether we want unlimited guns in the flow of commerce. I think there's all kinds of space for all of these things because we are no longer with the kinds of weapons we own in our homes getting to that question of tyranny. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we all actually want every home in America to be set up militia style to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I, you know, I've, 
With regards to the tyranny, yeah, I think about tyranny a lot, too. And I just, if the United States government becomes tyrannical, I think, like you said, there is very little that you can put in your own personal home that's going to protect you. I just do. Now, the reason, and this might be a good transition to our next topic, which is the humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico. I mean, I think that the if I see a space for gun ownership and why I chose to keep the gun I won in the giveaway is because I do think the coming, you know, natural disasters and situations like that, it's not too much government. It's when there's not quite enough law and order, not forever, but when things get a little dicey, you know, that that's maybe not a bad thing to have something around. (laughs) So, I mean, it's not that I don't think there's space for this. I just think that, you know, there's some, we're talking past each other. It's not getting anywhere. So let's, I think there's another way to talk about this that could be illuminating and helpful. And to that point about, about the gun that you chose to keep Sarah, you know, Chad and I have had this kind of um, ongoing debate in our house about having a gun ourselves. And what I have come to is if we ever decide to purchase one, we have not yet. I don't want to do that without myself going to get a whole lot of training yep, on what to do with it. And so I would have absolutely no problem with that being required of me. Mm-hmm. Just like I am required to get a whole lot of training and pass a test to demonstrate that I can operate a vehicle. Mm-hmm. So. I, if you heard Sarah's comment there and saw hypocrisy in it, no, like that's, there is a whole range of, there's just a range of options for us around this issue. And we well, have that's what to, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we have to stop talking about it as if there isn't. And we have to stop being manipulated by the NRA into believing that there is a world where you get to keep your guns or a world where you don't. Yeah. And I mean, that's where I came down to, you know, I won it at a police chief's auction. I had the police chief say, we will, you will come, we will show you how to use this. We will show you how to use this safely. We will provide you with the training, which is sort of a hard scenario to turn down. And the other thing is, you know, when I thought I wrote a blog post that I'll try to find and put in the show notes on my old blog a long time ago, where I read, I read the road and it really freaked me out. And I thought we got to get again. And then I thought, you know what, if I'm so concerned about a scenario Uh, particularly with regards to a natural disaster, then I might want to do the other things that are way more important to my family, like food and water that the actual, you know, FEMA suggests you have. And so now we, before I even start to begin to think about a gun. And so that's what we did. You know, my husband is not a prepper, but he is Eagle Scout. And so we have the water and the food and the things that you need should the power go out or the water supply um, not be functioning. Now, you know, we can't, we don't have the barrels of oats so that we can survive for months on time. But, you know, I thought, like, let's be, if, if I'm functioning out of a legitimate fear of a certain scenario, then I need to be fearful in the right order and think about what my family would actually need in that scenario, not, not just I'm going to get a gun to protect them. Like, so I try to be very considerate and thoughtful in the way I, th- I thought through that scenario and what I would need for my family um, before I went straight to the gun. And again, I didn't even buy it. I just wanted so. <laughs> So there's one other question I want to ask you about this before we talk about Puerto Rico. And maybe it's about both because I feel like the word evil has been floating around so much this weekend. I can't. Okay. I can't either. And I think we should talk about why. First of all, when he was like, sorry, the president in his remarks this morning, we're going to banish evil. Not a thing. Either word. I'm not sure I really believe in evil. 
first of all. And I certainly don't think we're ever going to be in a scenario where we banish it. It's just so unhelpful. Why does he talk about things like that? Like, it just puts everybody in this ridiculous black and white moralistic scenario in which they in the face of a situation that is extremely complicated and uh bothers me well i think a lot of politicians other than the president use the word evil this morning as well mm-hmm. and i understand why and i also think that we're never going to have any sort of healing in america until we are able to fully embrace like our personal messiness. The only analogy that I have, which is not a great one last night, I was doing child's pose. If you're not a yogi, that's it's the way a lot of kids sleep. So your knees are bent and you kind of take your butt back toward your heels and then your torso goes on the floor and it opens your hips and stretches your back. And I got there and I felt fine and I started taking some big breaths and the deeper, the more deeply I breathed, the more like really intense pain I felt in the middle of my back. And so I had a problem there that I would not have noticed if I just kept walking around in my life or, or if I had even done that stretch, but not really paid attention to what was happening. I only, I only felt it because I sort of tuned in and enabled myself Mm. to feel it. And what occurred to me is like, that's how the whole world feels to me right now. Like we're all just kind of walking around, sleepwalking, sort of paying attention to each other. And there are these intense moments of pain beneath all of that. The little bit that we've heard about the shooter in Las Vegas this morning has been, oh my God, this is just a regular guy. Mm -hmm. And a traffic stop is all that's on his criminal yeah. And, and his brother or someone. And again, we want to be careful because we don't know the facts yet. And tomorrow it could be a whole different story. But what has been reported at the time that we're recording this is that no one had an inkling that this person could go in this direction. And so labeling him as evil is not helpful to all of us who need to be more present to each other's pain. As we try Mm -hmm. to figure out how to prevent things like this, not just through the instruments that people use, but through the impulses that they have. Yep. Yep. Because it just it just shuts down the conversation. And I'm not uncomfortable with using the term evil to say like an evil act. Of course. Absolutely. That's obviously true. I just think when you we don't know anything about this guy, like we just don't. And even, you know, a month from now, we'll know very little. And I just think that, well, and here's the other thing. I think when you say that, it makes it about only that person. Yes. Or it makes it about that person in the realm of something beyond our control, like, you know, demons or just evil forces in the world. And that removes our own responsibility from a culture that produces these acts. And so, you know, I just think that when we don't, we don't try to see the bigger picture and we make it just about that person, um, that is really bothersome as well. Not to mention having real um, racial and cultural implications, because we sure don't do that when it's not a white shooter. And, you know, the somewhat awkward but related thing in my mind is that I, not to get just way out there, but I 
genuinely believe, and I believe it more every day, that what we feel and the way we view things, and especially the way we talk about them, puts an energy into the world that is um, cumulative. Mm -hmm. And so I got myself very wound up about the president this weekend. I raised my voice before my feet hit the floor on Sunday morning about the fact that he was playing golf. And I got very upset about the North Korea tweets. And I got even more upset about the tweets about the mayor of San Juan. Mm. Mm. And I said to my husband, it's getting very difficult for me to not personally despise him. Yeah. And then I realized what I, what we have talked about before that my reaction to Donald Trump is 100% within my control. Donald Trump is not within my control at all, but my reaction to him and the person that I become during this period in our nation's history is within my control. And so what I'm trying to get myself to, because again, I think my energy in the world, I don't want to be a person who's putting out energy into the world of just despising anyone. What I can come to is there must be incredible pain and fear and insecurity within Donald Trump to speak and act about people the way he is speaking and acting right now. Yes. In particular, with regards to Puerto Rico, I like it was really hard not to go to like full in Manuel Miranda space where he was like, you're going to hell. <laughs> like what is wrong with you? Cause I just don't think we have any conception of the suffering in Puerto Rico right now. I read a tweet where somebody said, I think somebody retweeted on our thing that literally every person in an ICU died. I just keep sort of moving about my life and thinking about like, oh my God, what if this space didn't have electricity? Oh my God, what if this space didn't have electricity? What if your child needed a life-saving operation and because of lack of electricity, you had to watch them die? What would you do? And that you can hear the desperation in the mayor of San Juan's voice. You can hear her just like, we're suffering. And you know, one of the, I did not think Saturday Night Live was very good this week, (laughs) but I I thought the way they did her was really good. Like you, you just, you could tell like they didn't want to make her a caricature. They wanted her to just be what she was, which is a woman going, please help us. We need help. What else am I supposed to do? We need help. Like there's no more vulnerable space to be in than just a person asking over and over again for help. And it was just so infuriating. And I had to think, you know, and I think not only is he have all the things you said about him are true, but I also think he has terrible information. I think that he just doesn't have any, I think the information he's getting from Puerto Rico because he doesn't like to hear things are going badly. Um, it's not accurate. That's my, that's my, the, the most sort of good intent I can assume in the scenario, because I don't know what, what other scenario in which you would, hear of the suffering and think through the implications of an entire island of people without electricity and come to any other conclusion, but this is suffering on a mass scale and we need to move heaven and earth to end it. Yeah. I think he must be viewing Puerto Rico as he might another nation, like where Mm -hmm. our assistance is optional instead of vital. So the, the conclusion for me is yes, I can, I can recognize in, in him pain 
that must be leading him to act this way because how could anyone act this way? And I can say that's not good enough in our president. Nope. Like, I'm sorry that he has that pain and I'm sorry for whatever things create the need to have his ego constantly built. I'm sorry about that. And that's just not good enough for our president. And I think this situation, I don't know that it needed to be clearer, but this is as clear as it gets to me. The reporting, everything that you said, I heard this news report about people standing in line for ice, trying Mm. to feed babies and keep their insulin cold. Oh, my God, I can't. I just don't. This just isn't good enough from our president. It's just not. Oh, because I just can't imagine how powerless they feel. And the only thing probably worse to feel, because I'm such a, I know in a moment of crisis, like I just go into super hardcore fix it mode. Like we will fix it. We will do whatever it takes. We will fix it. And so to feel the suffering of those around you and the people in your community and feel so powerless to help them must be excruciating. I just can't. Oh, it has to be excruciating and to be a, and to be a leader in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. having to mm-hmm. navigate the president's ego in the course of trying to secure the things that you need to help people. What an unbelievable burden to add to this already unimaginable situation. And what a disservice to our military. The, yep. the ego stoking, the fact that someone at FEMA created an infographic over the weekend to tout the work that they're doing. Every, Ugh. every person in the service who I've personally interacted with, and we've got lots to say about the military probably on Friday because we got some excellent feedback from our last episode. The folks that who I know who have served our country, when you even try to thank them, what they tell you is that it's just the job and it's their honor and privilege to serve the country. They are deserving of a commander in chief who is mm-hmm. not walking around saying, pat me on the back right now. Or it's not my fault. Right. It's just it is yeah. such a disservice. So we are skipping compliment the other side this week, and we are going to move on to my interview with Joshua Davis. I think y'all are really going to enjoy it. And then we'll wrap up with what we're thinking um, outside politics this week. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. 
I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped and I closed my eyes and I pictured my last therapist who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought this is just how time feels now and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. everybody, this is Sarah from The Left, and today I am joined by Joshua C. Davis, better known as Josh to me, one of my husband's best friends from high school, who just wrote a really cool book called From Headshops to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs. And you're not just my husband's best friend from high school. You're also a super um, impressive professor. Can you tell us your credentials, Joshua C. Davis? <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. That, that's, that's nice of you. You can... Uh... <laughs> You can uh, say I'm just uh, your husband's uh, friend, but yeah, no, I'm glad to uh, be here and to be talking with you. And uh, in short, I'm a history professor at the University of Baltimore, and uh, I've just put out this new book I've been working on for quite some time called From Headshops to Whole Foods, so I'm glad to be talking well, tell with me, you. Well, tell me why you decided to write about this. So it kind of came from a few different directions. One thing was when I was starting in graduate school, I was realizing um, how little had been written about or really done on the 1970s. And the 1970s was kind of an interesting era for me. It obviously came after the 60s, and historians have been writing about, about the 60s for 
decades now. They've written a tremendous amount of material in the 60s, and there's just kind of countless documentaries, and just everyone is obsessed with the 60s, for lack of and a better And you really term, don't think the, that um, VH1's I Love the 70s covered all the historical bases, importantly enough? You know, surprisingly, no. They left a few things unturned. Yeah, so that was an opening I saw. And um, I think part of what it was is I began to realize, well, the 70s is really the period in which kind of the popular culture unpacked the political protests of the 60s. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen Dazed and Confused, um, you know, which I think is actually a pretty good movie in terms of showing kind of the the influences of the 60s a few years on. It's set in the mm. middle of the 70s in Austin, Texas, and everyone listening to rock music and smoking pot, and even the jocks, even the high school quarterback is kind of torn between, you know, athletics and just kind of being a stoner hippie guy. And so I think that was kind of one of the big influences for me, like, oh, how did this decade end up emerging from out of the 60s? And the, and the answer I found was, okay, it's through consumer culture and business. That's one of the oh, big ways. So right. I need to look at how these little things are kind of coming out of these movements and how they're spreading their ideas into the popular culture. Well, and I thought what was so interesting is how fundamentally so many of these beginning businesses and you really you take it uh you take the you sort of tell the historical stories of several different types of businesses you talk about head shops you talk about feminist bookstores african-american bookstores and um, food co-ops did i miss any are there four is there another one yeah those are the main ones yeah yeah so you take these you take these sort of different businesses and then you say through their journeys, they changed the business culture in ways we all sort of fundamentally take for granted. I just sent you recently the podcast that Oprah did with Howard Schultz from Starbucks, and he's talking about businesses have to have souls. And, you know, you talk about um, Patagonia and Whole Foods and all these companies that Ben and Jerry's who really talk about the importance of sort of a social values and social culture, not to admit, I mean, and I'm, we're leaving out the big, the big boys, which is the tech industry and the not don't be evil mm-hmm. and all these different sort of perspectives that have become sort of something we just assume as the environment of the business culture, but how these beginning businesses really were um, pioneers and thinking through these important value systems within the, a business mindset. Well, that that was a excellent summary. I I, uh, I should <laughs> I should record that for my own purposes and then just steal it. But yeah, I, that's the other way in which I grew into this topic, into this project was what you said was realizing. Wow, there's so much about today, the reemergence of quote unquote artisanal businesses, of buying mm-hmm. local, just the idea of social enterprise is almost ubiquitous. And I began to realize, wow, like you said, we take these things for granted. It's almost like the air we breathe right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, businesses should do something more than just make money. But I began to realize this has a much longer history. And it's a history that even the people who, you know, today are using these terms aren't even aware of. Not only consumers aren't aware of it, but I think, you know, a lot of the tech companies have really lost 
I guess, an awareness of how much they owe to these earlier activist entrepreneurs. I think someone like Steve Jobs was aware of that. But, you know, as people of his generation pass away and retire, I think that institutional memory is probably being lost at places like Apple or a number of companies. But then again, there are these companies, a few like Patagonia or Ben & Jerry's still are very mindful of really trying to remain politically engaged. Well, and there is so much fascinating history. The one definite story I think we have to include that I was blown away by was the like co-op war in which you had co-op food people showing up with pipes and like violently injecting other co-op. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. It's a pretty outrageous set of events. Um, Basically, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, were, you know, are and have been for a left-leaning area with a lot, they had a lot of uh, anti-war protesters and, um, I mean, all social movements are very active there, the counterculture, but they have an interesting kind of backstory, that state, because, you know, there's so many Scandinavians there, Scandinavian uh, mm. people, and the Scandinavians, Northern Europeans have a very long tradition of co-ops, and so co-ops were something that were very familiar to Minnesotans already, but then this new generation rediscovered them. And what happened in the Twin Cities was you had a bunch of little food co-ops that were kind of struggling to do well, and they kind of caught on and grew a little bit. But then this really, for lack of a better term, out-of-left-field Marxist group decided, ah, these co-ops are doing it wrong. We've got to show them. We've got to take them over, if even by force. And it turned into this whole series of battles and you know of course the people who started the main co-op warehouse they didn't file incorporation papers so then from this marxist group could just come in and take it over and there was no way to legally prove who owned it so they just kind of so sometime and it got really out of hand yeah it, and uh, eventually the ownership of the warehouse reverted back to the people who started it but it just kind of showed the links to which people were willing to battle over these little businesses. Yeah. It was just so crazy. I mean, it's these little, you know, you think of a vegetable co-op or a food co-op Marxist battles with pipes is not exactly the first image that comes to mind, but I thought it was so interesting because like you said, when, you know, it's not as if if you're concerned with social values, especially if those social values include more extreme po- political ideology, that it's always going to be peaceful and that there's going to be so much conflict. And that was the sort of other thread that seemed to run throughout the book was that um, the the social value or the cultural value or the political value of sort of operating cons- by consensus was not exactly the most effective business strategy among many of these groups. <laughs> No, not at all. And I think that's one of the things I really try to emphasize how difficult it is to run political businesses. I mean, in general, most small businesses fail just as a fact. It's like the majority Mm -hmm. of small businesses fail within a decade. But then on top of that, if you want to have, you know, a quote unquote ethical or political meaning, politically meaningful business, and you want to do things like, yeah, make decisions by consensus or have a collective, all that stuff like injecting into a business takes a lot of work yeah. and it takes a lot of vacation and it takes a lot of meetings and it's pretty messy. I mean, that's what we say about our political system, you know, on a good day. But when you try to, you know, in, 
insert some kind of mutual accountability into how a business works. It's it's very messy, and a lot of people who started these businesses, they didn't come from business backgrounds, came from political backgrounds, and so they didn't really have a lot of know-how about how to run a business. They didn't keep inventory necessarily. They didn't keep steady hours. They just wanted to keep the lights on, but they didn't necessarily have a long-term plan. Well, and you had this faction of people almost within every single movement, maybe not necessarily the um, head shops or the the food coats, but particularly you talk about this a lot with the African-American bookshops and the feminist bookshops. You had a whole faction that said like, this, the, our values are inherently in conflict with any sort of money making. And so it, it would have been hard enough to keep things going had you not, had everybody even been on board with the idea of the business to begin with, but they weren't. Right. And that's one of the tricky things is that I think I'm looking at a lot of businesses in this book that were willing to make very minimal profits. Like they wanted mm-hmm. to keep the lights on, as I mentioned, they wanted to be sustainable, but they had a very different approach to profit making that was really more what you would expect from a nonprofit. And I think that's, I'm hoping is like one of the bigger insights of the book is that businesses have so many different ways of going about how to make money and how to stay in business. And I think the majority of businesses want to maximize profits, but not all businesses do. And I think that's right. what I was trying to look at in this book is well, what are the other forms of political and social engagement they try to balance against maximizing profits, right? People don't want to lose money, but that doesn't necessarily mean they want to become rich off of business. And that I think in our society, our economy, it's very hard for people even to admit that. Yeah. Well, but I think that, you know, the work of these people did makes it possible for Howard Schultz to come on, you know, the head of a multi-million dollar corporation, probably, I don't know, a Starbucks billion dollars part of this point, probably, and say, no, our goal is not to maximize profits. And he says, you know, our goal is to have a soul and to maximize the customer experience and our own people's experience. And I think that's something else I saw a lot throughout the book is that there was a more of a concern like that this the participation of these types of businesses in our economy changed the focus not just on what the business's purposes should be but also what the experience of the employee and what does work mean and what should work mean and you know you have you have a generation now that that is very comfortable questioning what do i want from a job do is is it just really just about making a salary or is it about something more fulfilling? I mean, I think that's so much a part of the air we breathe right now of, of people that want work that is fulfilling. And I feel like these businesses really played a part in that, don't you? Yeah. And you know, uh, now I'm thinking about it. I should have written more about it in my book, but no, I think you're really <laughs> right. It's like <laughs> how many articles have we seen that say, uh, this is how millennials are changing, um, employee employer relations or like their expectations are sky high. But I think you're right. This is another form of very long-term cultural influence where not even the children, but in some ways, a lot of these people are the grandchildren of activists and hippies from the sixties and seventies. And just, yeah, how they bring a totally different set of expectations to the workplace that would have been unthinkable not only 50 years ago, but even, I think, 25 years ago yeah. in most parts of the economy. But again, to go back to, you know, the tech businesses, I think they have, for better or for worse, have had a much bigger than expected impact on how workplaces in general reach themselves to employees and vice versa. There's kind of been this westward. There were many parts in the book where I was reading something and I thought, that sounds like a millennial. 
like the way they're describing work or describing what they wanted out of the business. And I just thought, yeah, that sounds like that. You, that could be an article about millennials in the workplace right now, for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to go back to Steve Jobs, he's someone who in many ways, maybe he was like the proto-millennial in some ways. I mean, he was very much a product of the counterculture. You know, he took LSD, he um, went to vegetarian co-ops and stuff like that. But he really, um, you know, he was like a relentless boss in many ways, but he also, he inserted that counterculture in some ways into the way Apple developed. And I think, you know, it's, it's much more, um, it's not as distinct or clear now, however many years on we are, like 40 years since Apple was founded. But they just, uh, those California companies really shaped the national landscape for how businesses want to be seen and how they want to structure workplaces. Well, let's talk about the other big player in the title of your book that's um, even more important now that Amazon has acquired it. But I thought one of the interest, definitely the interesting stories was the founding of Whole Foods. And um, I wondered if you could give us a little, you could give us a, a shortened version of the story, particularly what I thought was fascinating was the fire and the aid they had to accept and how that plays into the founder sort of philosophy or does oh, right. it, I guess. Uh, yeah. The flood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, you were, you were talking about a flood, right? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was a fire, yeah. but yeah, flood. <laughs> Same difference. Um, emergency. Yeah, it's all the same. Right. So basically, um, it was two people. It was John Mackey and his then partner, Renee Lawson. And they were two young hippies uh, wrapped up in the environmental movement. They had met in a vegetarian co-op dorm like that's where they met okay in austin texas and they said we want to change the world gosh let's start a business okay we're going to start this little natural food store it's going to be called safer way right that's clearly a criticism of safeway and all that multinational uh corporate supermarkets entail and that business totally failed but then what happened is they merged it with another business they started whole market in 1980 and really it was an attempt to kind of take the like hole in the wall environmentalist hippie natural food store and turn it into something bigger into a supermarket they were doing pretty well and then a year into their company there was a catastrophic flood in austin texas and what ended up happening is the company took a big fema emergency loan and it's really what allowed them to stay alive so that they weren't a company that was open for just a year, but now is a company that's approaching 40 years in business. Now, what's ironic is that gradually in the middle of the 80s, John Mackey, who had really been, you know, by his own description on the left, he really made a, a rightward shift and he really got immersed in libertarianism. So we have this company that's founded by a libertarian whose very survival depended on a major infusion of, of money from the federal government. And they've never really been open about this. It's like you can find tiny little newspaper articles from the 80s documenting this, but they they have made this flood story like a major part of their narrative. It's like all over their website, but they always leave out the fact that they only survive because of this government infusion, really. While perpetuating sort of 
anti-government sort of libertarian ideologies. I mean, ironic's one word for it. I would call it hypocritical and infuriating, but ironic is probably a kinder categorization. It's definitely hypocritical. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's the case with a lot of businesses where a CEO um, often embraces libertarianism and uses anti-government rhetoric uh, in their lobbying efforts. And, uh, you know, John Mackey's taken it to some extremes. You know, he's compared the Affordable Care Act to socialism, and I believe he used the word fascism before to describe Obama and you know, they've really gone to great lengths to conceal how much they owe the federal government. And the way they always tell the story is, oh, well, all these customers came and helped clean up the store and it just showed what a community we were. But they've never really wanted to admit that, you know, U.S. taxpayers bailed them out, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you're saying there is, I think, unfortunately, and I, um. And I think it seems like some of the activists saw this coming, which was, yes, to our benefit, there was a huge infusion of this culture of social values um, and corporate culture. But you really did have a huge amount of corporate um, co-opting of these images and of these ideas and of these approaches and sort of in the the least um authentic way possible, we're going to take some of these things and see if we can turn a bigger buck over them. And I think what's, you know, you make this point, I think it's so true that this coincided with sort of a decline in political um, participation. And I wonder if it, if there's, if there's more in a more amorphous situation in which there was a decline in political participation because corporate consumption began being presented as a type of political Mm -hmm. participation. And so people felt like, well, I don't need to um, go to a meeting or support a community organization because, hey, you know, I shop at Whole Foods. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Excellent, excellent point. And I think this is something a lot of people have been debating for years now, especially historians. Like, what is the tension or the relationship between economic participation and participation as a consumer on the one side and political participation, civic participation on the other side, like to what degree are they in tension? You know, most of the businesses I looked at, they said, okay, we are giving consumers a way to promote and further their values in the marketplace, but we're, we are not going to replace political participation. We are an accessory to social movements. We are trying Mm -hmm. to forward these movements and play a supporting role to the marches and the rallies and the petitions, the organizing. But what I think happened is exactly what you said, unfortunately, is that for many consumers, depending on their levels of political participation, they said what you said, I think, which is, oh, okay, you know, maybe like buying fair trade coffee is a more meaningful act than attending a local meeting. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. anyone has that explicit of a, you know, thought process along those lines, but that, yeah, a lot of people begin to substitute, quote unquote, ethical consumption for civic participation. And there, there is a real danger there, I think, that, um, and I think, you know, yeah, I think Whole Foods has, in some ways, kind of promoted that. Again, not explicitly, but just the idea that if you make good choices in the marketplace, you are a good citizen, period. Well, it's because I think for better or for worse in a growing global economy, we talk about this a lot on the pod, which is consumption is how we approach everything. It's how we approach healthcare. It's how we approach education. It's how we approach politics. It's not about participation. It's about consumption. And Mm -hmm. until we decide that 
um, there are more important things than how we that it's not to say that how we spend our money isn't important. It's hugely important in us in a, an economy as big as ours. But until we stop approaching everything as purchasing as a consumer, you know, Beth talks about this a lot with regards to political candidates. We don't buy politicians. We, we're not purchasing them. We're hiring them. And so sometimes they're not going to be perfect because when you hire someone, they're never perfect. And we can't just treat it as a checklist of needs that we have like we do when we pick out a TV. And, you know, I think that that these original entrepreneurs and these original business owners, like you said, they got that this was just an accessory and it was an important accessory at the time because, um, that the business culture was in the, in how you consumed was growing ever more important. And there wasn't really any, you know, we, th- we think of, it's so easy now to just, well, you know, tweet them, tweet this business and they'll tell Fox news to shut it down. And all of a sudden you have these really, um, encouraging results. And at the time it was just the idea that you could influence businesses, you know, I'm sure it was just bananas. It was just such a foreign concept. And so it's good that they put that out there. But like, like, like you just said, like it's become substituting ethical consuming for civic participation is not what we want. Yeah. And it's, it's happening in higher education too. I mean, now this idea that students are consumers, I mean, obviously students and their parents pay for education, but I think most people who go into education want it to be something that's bigger than just a market transaction. And, you know, uh, people like Robert Putnam, who wrote the book Bowling Alone that came out, I think, in the late 90s, you know, he, he did some of these same, he raised some of these same questions and is looking at, wow, the ways in which Americans over the last 40, 50 years have totally redefined what it means to be a member of a community and how that um, vision is much narrower than it was decades ago where participation in organizations and in groups and just in, you know, socializing in public really played a larger role in the way that communities thought of themselves and than it does mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Well, I really, really, really enjoyed the book. I thought the, the, um, stories of these businesses and the way they tried to work, fa- work, um, through these issues. My favorite quote was the, in the feminist bookstore shop where the woman said, you can't eat rhetoric. Loved that. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that happens a lot too these days. Um, and I thought it's just such an important, you know, an explicit overlapping of our corporate culture and our political culture and our civic culture and our culture as consumers doesn't happen, even though they're so hugely impactful on each other. So I thought this history was really, really, really important and a really great job. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, you just taking the time to actually read the book. You know, that's the thing <laughs> a lot of people don't do today, which is uh, read books. And, you know, especially it's uh, it's an academic work that I wrote, but it's targeted for a, for a broad audience. And so anytime someone takes the time to actually read a book from uh, beginning to end, that is a good thing <laughs> for, yep. uh, for all of us. And so I appreciate you having me here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So what are you thinking outside politics, Beth? Since we had very long car rides to our speaking engagement in Tennessee, I wanted to just sort of 
tune out for a little bit and do something, just think about things I don't usually think about. And so I binged on The Lazy Genius. This is its thing that makes me know I've spent a lot of time with you over the last two years, Sarah, because now I'm doing that thing that you do where if I have discovered something new, I need everybody to know about it. Everybody do it. (laughs) And this is how I feel with The Lazy Genius. She's so smart. I just like her. It's just a great podcast because I like her. She's somebody that I'm like, I wish you could live next door to me. And she just has these really simple, realistic ideas that I can actually incorporate into my life. Like she has this podcast about cleaning your kitchen and how it goes so much faster if you have a dish zone and a fridge zone so that you only play refrigerator Tetris one time. I'm like, that's brilliant. There's so many little things. And I had this really great professor in law school who would only edit like the first page of a long paper and then say, go forth in the same manner, basically. Oh, that's such a good idea. It's so good. And I feel like the lazy genius is like that. Like having listened to hours of her now, I feel like I can look at things in my house and say, oh, this is what Kendra would say to do about this. So I did that with my spice cabinet this weekend. It was revolutionary. It's awesome. (laughs) You should, I highly recommend it. So I listened to Hillary's book, but I'm not ready to talk about it because I'm not done. But so far I'm loving it. I listened to it um, six hours straight on the way to Tennessee and not all the way back, but, um, Really, really have some thoughts. We'll get to that. Um, I also am in just full packing, moving mode. All of our listeners out there, because I bet you guys are some lazy geniuses about moving and packing. So send me all your tips and ideas. Thank you. Um, Because I am waking up at like 5.45 a.m. every morning. My brain is like, wake up. I figured out where to put the books. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up and write this down. Um, my It's like very intense inside my brain right now. But I did take a, like a break last night to watch the first two episodes of The Center because everybody is obsessing about it. And I felt left out. You know, I don't like to feel left out. So I did watch the first two episodes of The Center with Jessica Biel um, and Bill Paxton, which were really, really good. I'm really enjoying it so far. So anybody else out there obsessed with The Center, I'm now on board. I want to tell y'all that Sarah had been listening to the Hillary book all the way to Tennessee and we had breakfast right before our speaking thing. And our breakfast went like this. It was like the perfect representation of who we are. Sarah would be like, here's a thing from Hillary's book. And I'd be like, right, we're about to go do the speaking thing. Let's talk about this. And she'd be like, here's another thing from Hillary's book. And I'd be here's like, that is so Hillary interesting. Said. And here's a speaking thing that we have to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but I totally awesome. made it work. I made it, I had some really, cause she had this really great um, line from David Foster Wallace says commencement address about the two fish are swimming and an old fish swims by and says morning boys how's the water and the two fish keep swimming and then the one fish looks at the other fish and says what's water and i am thinking about that anecdote all the time it is so applicable like to the consumerism it really is it's applicable to everything so i worked it in she she did it was awesome and everything she said was super interesting and it was just like the perfect example of how we are both very intense about the things that we're going to be intense about (laughs) Yeah, because my brain, like, especially something, six hours is a lot of, like, one thing to take in. But it was really nice because it was, like, a break for my brain because I could just be with my girl and we were just talking about some stuff that happened. And I wasn't thinking about my house or I wasn't thinking about um, the business and all these different things. So it was sort of a nice break in a way, although a very stressful topic. Um, But it was like, you know, my brain was like a dog with a bone. Like, oh, and then Hillary said this. I want to talk about this. And then Hillary said this. And I want to talk about that, too. <laughs> Dog with a bone is probably a description of my brain overall. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. You can leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Player. We greatly appreciate it. Visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to find out more about supporting the show. 
You can find us on all the social media channels, Pantsuit Politic with no S on Twitter, Pantsuit Politics elsewhere. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. 